Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. About 20% of employees in the United States work shifts outside the hours of 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Up to 45% of night shift workers report excessive sleepiness and are more likely to develop shift work disorder. This placebo-controlled study by Ehrman and colleagues, which was sponsored by Cephalon, examined whether six weeks of the wakefulness-promoting agent R. modafinil could improve overall functioning and daily quality of life in patients with excessive sleepiness associated with shift work disorder. Study patients were men and women aged 18 to 65 years diagnosed with shift work disorder according to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and DSM-4-TR criteria. For six weeks, patients were given 150 milligrams of armodafinil or placebo 30 to 60 minutes before working a 6 to 12 hour shift. Patients were not permitted to administer armodafinil after 11 p.m. Efficacy measures included changes in patient-reported functioning measured by the modified Sheehan Disability Scale and changes in quality of life using the 10-question Functional Outcomes of Sleep Questionnaire. Patients treated with armodafinil had significantly greater improvement in Sheehan Disability Scale composite scores at their final study visit than those receiving placebo. The armodafinil group had greater improvement in the 10-question Functional Outcomes of Sleep Questionnaire Total Score from Baseline to Final Visit, but statistically significant improvement was seen only in those patients who completed the six-week study. The study concludes that armodafinil significantly improved patient-rated functioning compared with placebo in patients with shift work disorder. Patients who received armodafinil for six weeks also demonstrated improved quality of life compared with those receiving placebo. Patients with insomnia have increased rates of medical and psychiatric illness compared with the general population. Likewise, patients with serious medical and psychiatric disorders have extremely high rates of insomnia. In this post hoc analysis, Crystal and colleagues compared the treatment effect size of esopiclone 3 milligrams for insomnia in patients with a diagnosis of primary insomnia and in patients with several of the psychiatric and medical conditions that are most commonly comorbid with insomnia. Data were analyzed from five large multicenter randomized double-blind placebo-controlled studies of adult outpatients of at least one month duration published between 2006 and 2009. All studies were sponsored by Synovian. 
diary-derived indices of sleep and daytime functioning, and the insomnia severity index were compared for patients with primary insomnia and for those with insomnia comorbid with major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, perimenopause or postmenopause, and rheumatoid arthritis. Cone D effect sizes were calculated for each individual study as the between-treatment difference scores divided by the pooled standard deviation. Effect sizes range from 0.40 to 0.69 as early as week 1 and were maintained at 0.26 to 0.63 at week 4 for sleep latency wake time after sleep onset, and total sleep time. Sleep latency and total sleep time effect sizes increased from week 1 to week 4 in the primary insomnia group. At week 4, effect sizes on all three parameters and the insomnia severity index tended to be highest for the primary insomnia patients and tended to be lowest for patients with comorbid generalized anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder. The effect sizes for daytime functioning were small for all insomnia patient groups. The study results indicate that 3 milligrams of esopiclone is an effective treatment for insomnia across five clinically diverse patient populations. However, magnitude of effect is mediated by underlying comorbidities and their treatments, with the largest measures of effect seen in primary insomnia and lowest in major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. The authors conclude that these consistent results and the fact that clinical trials were conducted in patients being treated as appropriate for their comorbid clinical conditions support for the real-world generalizability and utility to clinical practice of these findings. Trichotillomania, or compulsive hair pulling, is a psychiatric disorder characterized by psychosocial impairment and reduced quality of life. The aim of this study was to analyze the impact of age at onset of trichotillomania in a sample of 98 treatment-seeking adults using a variety of clinical and neurocognitive measures. The authors split the sample on the basis of when patients reported onset of their hair-pulling problem, either pre-puberty or post-puberty, and compared them to a sample of individuals without any psychiatric history. They found that post-pubertal age at onset was significantly associated with greater hair-pulling severity, and these individuals pulled for a significantly greater amount of time daily and had higher clinician and patient-rated severity on various scales used to measure severity of symptoms. On the computerized neurocognitive tasks, the older onset group had more problems inhibiting their responses compared to the control sample, while the childhood onset group had problems shifting their behaviors compared to both the older onset and control groups. The study results show that childhood onset of 
trichotillomania is common as confirmed by the fact that 42.9% of the sample met childhood onset criteria and may differ neurobiologically from the prototypical later onset form. The author suggests that future neurobiological and treatment studies should measure age at onset of trichotillomania and explore these putative differences further. In addition, awareness of this behavior should be brought to the attention of schools as a means of identifying and helping children affected by this disorder early in life. This research was supported by a Center for Excellence in Gambling Research grant and a Reinvestment Act grant from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Major Depressive Disorder, or MDD, is a serious U.S. public health problem for children and adolescents. This study, supported by the West Virginia University School of Pharmacy, utilized survey methodology to explore pediatricians' self-reported role in treating children and adolescents with MDD after the 2004 U.S. Food and Drug Administration black box warning. A national random sample of 2,000 pediatricians was surveyed with a resulting usable response rate of 22.7% or 408 of 1,800 deliverable surveys. 60% of the pediatricians do not treat children or adolescents with MDD. Fewer than one-third reported treating both children and adolescents with MDD. The majority of the pediatricians, about 85%, reported referring both children and adolescents to psychiatrists for MDD treatment. This study highlights the fact that treatment of children and adolescents with MDD has reached a crisis in the United States. The majority of U.S. pediatricians do not treat this population, but instead refer them to specialists. However, there is a serious shortage of child psychiatrists, the experts who are trained to care for these patients. Future studies could explore pediatricians' rationale for referring these patients and could provide direction and possible solutions to pediatricians' hesitation to treat children and adolescents diagnosed with MDD. The National Comorbidity Survey Replication, conducted from 2001 to 2003, found that only 1 in 10 adults identified as having ADHD was being treated for their ADHD, even though 45% had been in treatment for other mental health disorders during the previous year. This finding suggests that physicians and mental health professionals are often overlooking ADHD in their clinical evaluations. U.S. physicians lack treatment guideline support for adult ADHD management and, until recently, have had few opportunities for learning how to diagnose and treat ADHD in adults. In April 2010, Goodman and colleagues created an Internet survey as part of a needs assessment of customary care related to diagnosis and management of adults with ADHD. The project was supported by an independent educational grant from Shire. Adult clinical case vignettes were followed by a series of questions to assess respondents' current clinical practice and barriers to optimal practice. 
In all, 1,216 primary care physicians and 708 psychiatrists completed the survey. The greatest barrier to diagnosis among primary care physicians was limited experience with ADHD diagnosis in adults. For psychiatrists, the most often reported barrier was difficulty distinguishing ADHD from other disorders. In addition, both groups cited difficulty distinguishing ADHD from other disorders as a barrier to ADHD management. The study results show that one-fourth of both primary care physicians and psychiatrists would use an unapproved immediate-release stimulant as initial treatment for an adult rather than one of the approved long-acting medications. Survey responses also show a difference in how two groups address cardiovascular treatment side effects of simulants, with psychiatrists more frequently performing a cardiovascular workup compared to primary care physicians. The study shows that although levels of confidence in diagnosis, treatment, and management of adult ADHD have improved, considerable gaps remain among both primary care physicians and psychiatrists with regard to information about the disease state, treatment, and management. The authors point out that this survey represents the largest and most current assessment of the state of adult ADHD care and the need for continued physician education in this area. Geriatric substance abuse is a topic of growing interest. However, most of the existing literature has focused on alcohol and prescription drug abuse. Meanwhile, relatively little attention has been paid to illicit substance use among the elderly. In this article by Taylor and colleagues, the extent of illicit drug use in the elderly is defined and methods of early recognition and appropriate treatment are reviewed. The authors used Ovid Medline and PsycInfo search engines to identify recent studies on illicit substance abuse among the elderly across a variety of settings, including office visits, emergency departments, hospital inpatients, and incarcerated adults. They were able to generalize several common points among these studies, as well as identify blind spots in the current understanding of the topic. The key points of the review can be summarized as follows. Illicit substance abuse has been incorrectly assumed to end as patients age. In reality, elderly illicit drug users are increasingly common and have a unique profile compared to younger drug users. Elderly substance users are more likely to have less obvious and expensive drug habits, which may easily be overlooked by clinicians or may even be mistaken for dementia or delirium. Elderly illicit drug users are also much less likely to be involved in the street-level drug trade. To date, there are no validated screening methods for illicit substance use in the elderly. Instead, clinicians must rely on a thorough history with a high index of suspicion. The authors conclude that clinicians must maintain a high index of suspicion and consider elderly illicit drug use in their differential diagnosis for dementia, delirium, and depression. Previous surveys have sought to capture the impact of Alzheimer's disease from the caregiver's perspective. 
The surveys described in this article, which were sponsored by Novartis, were designed to investigate experiences and perceptions of caregivers of patients with Alzheimer's disease who were receiving rivastigmine transdermal patch therapy. In both surveys, participants were required to be the principal caregiver of a patient with Alzheimer's disease who had been receiving transdermal patch therapy for at least three months. The initial pilot study was designed to establish the merit for more extensive quantitative research. Caregiver responses in the subsequent quantitative study were pooled and grouped by country for analysis. The surveys revealed that caregivers of patients with Alzheimer's disease experience emotional and practical impacts. Many caregivers reported a delay in receiving a diagnosis, frequently due to slow onset of symptoms. In addition, many felt they had not received sufficient information about Alzheimer's disease, treatment options, or available support. In general, transdermal patch therapy was considered to be more convenient and easier to administer than oral treatments. Importantly, the advantages of patch therapy were seen to translate into emotional benefits. The results of these surveys revealed important aspects of caregivers' experience of Alzheimer's disease and therapy. Information provided at diagnosis is an important consideration, as an absence of information may prevent participation in therapeutic decisions. With recent data highlighting the importance of early initiation of symptomatic Alzheimer's disease therapy and the importance of reaching an optimal therapeutic dose, the author suggests that reasons for delay in treatment initiation need to be explored. Now we invite you to engage online in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute Case Conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute's Memory Disorders Clinic. In this issue of The Companion, we highlight the cases of two patients with cognitive impairment who underwent amyloid brain imaging in conjunction with other tests to assist with diagnosis. This case presentation is one of the first to report how this tool, which was recently approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, can be used by clinicians. Visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to answer questions about the patient cases and find out how your colleagues who attended the weekly case conference responded to this instructive offering. When the diagnosis is cancer, when the problem is heart disease, or when the cause of distress is emphysema, often much is known medically about the patient's situation. However, when the diagnosis is obscure and the problem is a rarity, there may be no accepted treatment to prescribe. The management issues may be more complicated. However, the patient's task of where to focus remains largely the same as that of someone with a more common problem. In the case presentation from this issue's psychotherapy casebook, read how therapeutic intervention helped Mr. A., a 50-year-old veteran with a rare disease, adjust to life inside the confines of a nursing home unit. 
Have you ever had a patient who insisted that he or she was neither using nor abusing opiates when the toxicology screen was positive? Have you ever been perplexed by not knowing whether to believe your patient or the laboratory test? Have you ever considered it certain medications or foods can contribute to false positive or false negative drug screens? If you have, then the case vignette presented by Stern and colleagues in this issue's rounds in the general hospital should serve as a stimulus for further inquiry into these and other questions. This month we highlight two cases in which individuals killed their spouses and claimed total or partial amnesia. Neither individual had a history of aggressive behavior. Both had concomitantly taken 10 milligrams or more of zolepidem in addition to a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Read this interesting brief report along with a variety of letters featured in this issue. Thanks for joining me for this summary and offerings from our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings, including the opportunity for continuing medical education credit and special web-based interactive content. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites.